The book of Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters long. You can read it carefully in less than one hour. But it can be a tough book to read because sometimes you aren't sure whether what is being said is true or not. And some bits just don't seem to fit together in any coherent way. So it will be important for us to find the overall logic of the book. What is the author's thought flow? Now, there is some confusion over who wrote Ecclesiastes. The church traditionally has attributed it to King Solomon. It was fashionable about 40 years ago to say that that was an impossibility because the language is too sophisticated for the period in which Solomon lived. But more recent scholarship has knocked that argument back, so it is now perfectly reasonable to argue for Solomon as author. There are actually two voices in the book, the author and an enigmatic figure simply called the teacher. The book is framed by comments made directly by the author, but the vast bulk of the book is an autobiography of the teacher. I take Solomon to be the author and the teacher to be a literary persona that he has created. But we know from other parts of scripture that the teacher's story is frighteningly close to Solomon's real life story. So let's get underway by reading some verses from Ecclesiastes together. Let's read from chapter 6, the first six verses. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? And then over to chapter 7, the first two verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And then finally, to a single verse in chapter 11, chapter 11 and verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Have a look at the slide, which hopefully will have appeared on your screen. It attempts to show how the book is structured. The first thing we see is that Ecclesiastes is symmetrical. It's a bit like a, a mirror image. In the first six chapters, we see a descent into intellectual madness. As we read uh, in chapter 6, uh, in fact, as we've just read in chapter 6, the teacher gets to the point where he argues that life is so meaningless that birth and death should be telescoped into a single event, as we find in that unutterably sad event known as a stillbirth. It's at this point where the teacher gets close to the nihilism found in the writing of modern existentialists. But then, in chapters 7 through 12, we find a recovery of sorts. By the end of the book, the teacher is standing on the firm foundation of a biblical worldview. 
He believes that God is creator and judge. He has come to discern the reality of the fall of man and the resulting futility of living in a fallen world. But more importantly, perhaps, he has discovered what is truly valuable in life. And by the end of the book, he has discovered a rational basis for a meaningful life. Now, I am acutely conscious that not everyone enjoys structural analysis. Some of you do appreciate it. And for those people, I have created a short PDF document, which Andrew McCochran has kindly posted on the church website. It's a reading plan for the book, based on the structure you're looking at right now. And the advantage of this scheme is that I do not have to detain you long with this lurid pink and grey diagram. Now, the structure you have just seen provides the backdrop to the three points I intend to make in this talk. I want to talk about the wrong way to search for meaning. Then we'll consider the right way to look for meaning. And finally, we'll reflect together on the central characteristic of a meaningful life. The first six chapters record the teacher's initial attempt to find meaning in life. Meaning is produced by a combination of three elements, purpose, significance and value. By purpose I mean that life has a goal, that it's actually heading somewhere. By significance we mean that our lives make a difference. There is some consequence to the fact that we have lived on this planet for a while. And by value I mean moral worth, what is truly valuable in life. So meaning comes about when our lives have purpose, significance and value. And Ecclesiastes starts off attacking the idea that creation itself has purpose. If you look at nature, the teacher argues in chapter 1, you won't see a universe that's going anywhere. It's better understood as a big cycle. Waters flow into the oceans and then get recycled as rain. The planet moves with monotonous regularity around the sun, year after year. So nature is better understood as a stage on which the human drama is played out. Nature does not set us on some cosmic elevator that automatically takes us somewhere. But the problem is that the actors keep changing. One generation enters stage right, while the previous generation exits stage left. So humanity itself has no purpose. And it really frustrates the teacher that he can pour his entire life into building a cultivated society that a future generation can tear down simply because they are idiots. So he concludes that life has no purpose or significance. But that leaves value. In chapter 2, the teacher tries to find meanings in the good gifts of life, in things like work and pleasure and wisdom. But he ends up hating his life, because although the gifts of creation are good things, they are not ultimate things. So ultimate meaning cannot be found in art or engineering or politics or pleasure. And the teacher keeps hitting his head against the same brick wall. We are temporary. That's one of the key meanings of the idea of vapour of vapours. Life is transient. But even for the few moments that we are on stage, we are trapped. There's a famous poem uh, at the start of chapter 3. Uh, it's often read for reasons I will never understand at funerals. Uh, and it begins like this. There is a time to be born and a time to die. The teacher is talking here about the big historical forces that move society in one direction and then in the opposite direction. So in our own lifetimes, we have seen there was a time for modernism and then there was a time for postmodernism. His point is that we are trapped within these big historical forces. We don't get to choose whether we're born in New York or in a remote part of Papua New Guinea. We are trapped by our historical setting. But at the same time, we have absolutely no way of controlling the future. 
So the present is held in this pitiless vice between a fixed past and an uncontrollable future. We're trapped in another way, he says, in chapters 4 and 5. We're trapped in unjust societies. We're at the mercy of oppressors, of the wealthy who hoard money, at the mercy of incompetent bureaucrats who run the apparatus of the state. We're trapped by the past and the present and have no control over the future. And then there is death. The shadow of death hangs over Ecclesiastes like an eclipse of the sun. We die like beasts, says the teacher. Soon we will be forgotten. Now, that might seem overly dark for those of you with children. Well, let me ask you a question. How often do you think about your great-great-great-grandparents? Or your great-great-grandparents? I don't have the slightest idea who they even were. Life is temporary, and soon we will be forgotten. So how can temporary creatures find purpose and significance and value? As we saw earlier, these reflections take the teacher to a very dark place. Even in the best case scenario, he says, and he takes this incident that we read about, this case study, where a man has honour and wealth and wisdom, he has a quivers full, uh, full of children, he lives an incredibly long life. Even then, he is doomed to live an unsatisfied life, and so he ends up wishing that he had died at birth. Now, before we dismiss that analysis as a piece of intellectual folly, uh, which it is, of course, we might do well to note that in many ways we have just summarised humanity's various philosophies, particularly philosophies over the last 350 years. But with a huge sense of relief, we watch the teacher change tack at the start of chapter 7. And that brings me to my second point. There is a right way to search for the meaning of life. And it begins by asking the right question. In chapter 7, the teacher decides to live life backwards. In other words, instead of thinking about life as a potential thing which keeps getting thwarted by our circumstances, circumstances beyond our control, he thinks about his own funeral. In fact, he invites us to a funeral. And he then asks himself, what value did I create while I was alive? Now, that is an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? You see, in the delivery suite of a hospital, we look at a newborn child and we think about its potential. We might coo and say, she looks just like her mother. But stand at a graveside, watch the coffin of an elderly woman being lowered into the grave, and we say, by the end, she looked like Jesus. It dawns upon the teacher that the only truly valuable thing in life is a morally admirable character. He uses the word precious for the only time in the book when he says that a good character, a good name, is like precious ointment. Now, let me stop there and ask, as believers, do we think along those lines? The teacher missed the importance of good moral character because he got lost while in, he was in hedonism and intellectual folly. But evangelicals like us can miss the same point because we are so complacent. We know that we are accepted by God, that we know already we're going to heaven. So really, who cares too deeply? about the development of a morally admirable character. Ollie and I published a podcast last week on the man called Jordan Peterson. He is not a Christian, and yet he talks much more passionately about the need to develop good character than most evangelical preachers. Anyway, the teacher's flash of insight now puts him on an unstoppable logical journey, and you can see that unfold in chapters 7 through 9. 
he achieves sufficient intellectual humility to recognize that he himself is far from morally admirable. In fact, it's at this point in chapter 7, he recognizes what we call the fall of man. He discovers that humanity is universally sinful. He discovers that God made us straight, but we have chosen to make the world crooked. There isn't a single righteous person on the planet, he says. And the Apostle Paul is almost certainly quoting the teacher when he says that same thing in Romans 3. So where does that paradox leave us? Imagine a non-Christian is listening to me now, and if you are in that state, you are really welcome, and thank you for joining us. What would a non-Christian listening to me now think? Perhaps she has accepted the twin ideas the teacher has just mentioned. First, that a morally admirable character is the only valuable thing in life, and second, we are all far from that standard. Once someone has accepted those ideas, which can come about just by thinking about life, then a great deal of Christian theology unfolds inexorably and naturally. In chapter 9, the teacher returns to this idea that we die like beasts. But now he is morally outraged at that thought. If moral qualities have intrinsic value, if things like kindness and patience and goodness and long-suffering, if those have real value, then why does death just bulldoze everything away? Why does it make no distinction between the righteous and the moral fool? And that is such a powerful argument. You're forced to go in one of two ways. Either you deny that a morally beautiful character has any real value, or you are driven to the conclusion that there must be a judge who will judge us after death. There is no escape from that logic, says the teacher. And so we arrive at the answer to a meaningful life. Now, please notice that not once in Ecclesiastes is the love of God mentioned, nor is there any talk of resurrection. All we have is the logic that forces us to admit that there will be a final judgment unless everything is meaningless. The teacher says at the start of chapter 9, he doesn't know whether or not God will accept or reject him. But even in the absence of that knowledge, he has found the secret to a meaningful life. And that answer, I suggest, is found in the verse we read earlier, chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So what is he doing here? He is encouraging young people to live with courage, to seize hold of life, to squeeze everything they can out of it. But he says, live like that, knowing that there will be a final exam. God will judge you. Now, even as believers, we tend to think of the final judgment as a truly scary and terrifying event. But think of it like this. The teacher is revealing the secret of meaning here. A meaningful life is an accountable life. Without a judgment from God, all our efforts dissipate into meaninglessness. Imagine a classroom full of infants, obviously in a post-COVID world, and they're colouring in a picture of a, I don't know, a horse or something. But their teacher tells them a secret. Once they've finished their colouring in, the Prime Minister will walk into the classroom and he will inspect every drawing carefully. He will give a prize to the top three coloured horse drawings he has judged. Well, the children will get really excited. You would see their little tongues extend as they focus carefully, paying close attention not to cross over the lines, choosing the most imaginative colours they can think of to turn the beauty created in their little minds into actuality. Now, of course, that is a crass illustration, but I hope you get the point. A life can only be meaningful 
if it is accountable. But as I mentioned earlier, we evangelicals have completely missed that point. We sometimes think that at the end of time, all our coloured horse drawings will be shredded and will each be presented with an identical photo of a horse. Well, listen carefully to the Apostle Paul as he speaks in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Maybe I'm talking to a believer who feels that your life is futile. It is a vanity of vanities, a vapour of vapours. Well, one day the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who dwells in the Holy of Holies, will come walking into your classroom. And he will examine every detail of the life you have coloured in over your 70 or 80 years. He will see the care and the imagination you took in all the tiny little moments when you interacted with other people the difficult choices you made that no one else knows about. He won't really care about the beautiful daydreams you had of a beautiful horse picture. He will look at the actual marks you have made on the pages of your life. He will be able to see whether or not you followed his design plan carefully or whether you just scrawled all over the page, crossing boundaries thoughtlessly. He will see how hard you worked or whether or not you got bored and only coloured in the horse's head. He will see whether or not you poured your creativity and your imagination, your appreciation of beauty into your life, or whether you were content to colour the whole thing in, in utilitarian grey. What did you do to justify the privilege of your existence? He will ask. What did you make out of the blessings of life that I gave you? Now, rather than feeling guilty about that moment, think of it this way. Just think how meaningful your little life will be when it is examined in such detail by God himself. This is the great insight that the teacher of Ecclesiastes brings to us. Death does not discriminate between the morally beautiful and the moral life, or the moral fool. And life doesn't reward people on that basis either. So either there is nothing of any value in reality, or else there has to be a final judgment. Meaning in life is found by living an accountable life. So colour in carefully. Choose the very best, the most creative colour scheme you can dream of, and then put in the hard work to finish the picture of your life. So we've thought about the wrong way to search for meaning, the right way, and the answer to life's meaning. A meaningful life is an accountable life. Every student knows that if there are no final exams, then you've just wasted three years. You aren't qualified for anything. The simply astonishing thing here is that the teacher in Ecclesiastes worked so much of this out just by observing life and thinking hard, thinking about it in the right way. But we must remember that Ecclesiastes does not tell the whole story of the gospel. I would summarise it rather crudely in this way. I think he got to the point where he believed the first six chapters of Genesis. He believed in a creator, the fall of man, the consequential futility experienced by a fallen creation, the loss of existential purpose experienced by Cain, the inevitable drumbeat of death recorded in chapter 5, and the final judgment as told in the story of the flood. So I close by reminding you of the importance of reading Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes canonically. In other words, you should see it as a backdrop, as a foil to the New Testament. 
You see, one day there came another king who was a teacher. And he talked about the meaning of life in a message we call the Sermon on the Mount. And our Lord shows us how we can live in the full colour and vibrancy of the eternal kingdom. Every day we can participate in a reality that is not under the sun. And his message leads to a view of life and his motivations that is no child's drawing of a horse. In comparison to Ecclesiastes, the life depicted by the Sermon on the Mount, it's like that great war horse described in the book of Job. And I want to quote it to you as an antidote to the pessimism of Ecclesiastes. In Job we read these words. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. That is how to live a meaningful life. Give me Job any day of the week over Solomon. Someone who lives a meaningful life will get hurt. We will walk into heaven with scars. But that's because we are warriors who fight and have fought for the kingdom of heaven. We don't hate our lives. We love them. We aren't content to just draw within the lines. We're motivated to build and plant and fight and nurture. We build Christian homes. We build this church. We invest in the lives of others. We contend for the faith. We travel to South America or Papua New Guinea to make disciples of all men. We care diligently for our loved ones because that is what our Lord would do. We struggle with old age and impending death because we know that before too long, the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. This old world under its sun is temporary, but we look not for the, to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Unlike Solomon, we do not doubt God's love for us. The part of the New Testament which seems to quote Ecclesiastes directly is found in Romans chapter 8. In verse 20, Paul says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, to vapour if you like, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We can see what the teacher of Ecclesiastes could not see. We do not wonder if God is going to accept us or reject us. God is for us, says Paul. So who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then finally, we do not fear death. We do not die like beasts, wondering if our spirits will rise up or return to the dust. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks. He answers his own question with these words. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to stare life's deepest questions in the face tonight. It is rare in this society, Lord, 
for us to have the chance to discuss the apparent futility of life. And we recognise that the struggle to find meaning, to find purpose and significance and value isn't straightforward for some of us. But we thank you for the central message of Ecclesiastes, that we find meaning in the truth that one day you will hold us accountable for the lives we have led, for the way we have invested the talents you have given us. Rebuke our hearts, Lord Jesus, if we have lived like the man who buried his single talent because he thought you were a hard man. Help us to live lives that matter, to develop characters that are morally beautiful, and help us to live with the vigour and courage of Job's warhorse, rather than losing ourselves in the intellectual follies of human philosophy. Help us to live life backwards, Lord, to be driven by the desire to actualize a morally admirable character before we die, so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Our final hymn is very appropriate. Yet not I, but Christ through me. To this I hold, says the chorus, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope is my life is wholly bound to his oh how strange and divine i can sing all is mine yet not i but through christ in me for my peace.